0: In this episode, we speak with Dr. Olainka Jela, who teaches politics and international relations at Leeds Beckett University. We speak with Tenuke Adigun, who researches international development at Johns Hopkins University. And we speak with Dr. Marie Huber, who teaches African history at the Humboldt University of Berlin. In this episode, we look at the Cold War in Africa, the battle for ideologies, and the role of Africans in the push and pull. We look at civil wars and revolution. We also look at the assassination of Haile Selassie and the rise of the Derg in particular. Now, coups are a very interesting thing. It involves the toppling of a government and the reconstitution of law and order. Literally overnight. And Africa truly and really suffered from this. Now, in the 1960s alone, there was a plethora of coups. So in Algeria in 1965, Burundi 1965 and 1966 the Central African Republic in 1966, Congo in 63 um, Dahomey in 1963 and Ghana 66, Nigeria 66, Mali in 1968 Syria in 1967 and 68 and there are at least 15 unsuccessful or abortive coups known during the period between 1960 and 1968 <laughs> now that sort of situation continued all throughout the latter half of the 20th century now when a coup occurs one of the first things that actually is heard by the people is that announcement it's a very chilling thing now i'm going to play a speech given by general sani abacha after his coup in 1993
1: the interim national government is hereby dissolved The national and state assemblies are also dissolved. The state executive councils are dissolved. The brigade commanders are to take over from the governors in their states until administrators are appointed. Where there are no brigade commanders, the commissioners of police in the states are to take over. All local governments stand dissolved. The directors of personnel are to take over the administration of the local governments until administrators are appointed. The National Electoral Commission is hereby dissolved. All former secretaries to federal ministries are to hand over to their director generals until ministers are appointed. The two political parties are hereby dissolved. All processions, political meetings, and associations of any type in any part of the country are hereby banned. Any consultative committee, by whatever name called, is hereby proscribed. Decree 61 of 1993 is hereby abrogated. A Provisional Ruling Council is hereby established. It will comprise the Head of State, Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the Federal Republic of Nigeria as Chairman, the Chief of General Staff as Vice-Chairman, the Honourable Minister of Defence, the Chief of Defence Staff, Service Chiefs, the Inspector General of Police, the Attorney General and Minister of Justice, the Internal Affairs Minister, the Foreign Affairs Minister, and the National Security Advisor.
0: So now we speak with Dr. Olainka Ajala, who teaches politics and international relations at Leeds Beckett University. All right, so let's begin with coups and counter-coups in Africa
2: and uh, from the decade of independence and how important they are. Uh, during the colonial era, the African con- most African countries depended on the military of the colonial nations. So many of them had very weak military infrastructures or military uh, formations. So aligning with um, either of these blocs was an opportunity to actually strengthen the military and also to maintain sovereignty and independence. However, this um, was not the case because um, both the Western bloc and the Eastern bloc were not sure if the Cold War was going to degenerate into an all-out war. So in their desperation they um, were throwing resources at many African countries. So for instance, if the government of an African country is supporting the Eastern Bloc, um, groups within the states would then emerge, which would then get support from the Western Bloc. And that was how many African countries um, were polarized. So you have the states supporting the Bloc, and then, a group within the states would then emerge, which would then support the other bloc. And this led to several civil wars uh, within Africa because um, people that felt disenfranchised during the independence. So there were groups of people within each, within many African states that felt they did not, they fought for independence. They were part of the group that advocated for independence, but they felt that they were sidelined after after independence, and they did not reap the benefits of governance. So many of these um, um, groups broke off from the states, um, formed rebellion against the states, and then aligned um, aligned with um, opposing group of the Cold War, and this resulted in in conflict in many African states. And um, some of these country um, conflicts actually still. Um, still impacts negatively on African countries till now because mm-hmm. many uh many of those rebel groups formed during the cold war still exist till today and um this cr- continue to create conflict in Maver- many African states. Secondly um the Cold War also just like the Second World War ended abruptly and the financial um compensation or the income that was coming from either block seized immediately at the end of the Cold War, leaving many of these countries also in financial um, stress or distress, which then generated um, resulted in uh, protests, conflicts, and in some instances, eventual takeover by the military. So you can see that all these things um, actually shape the way the continent of Africa is still today, so major f- issues like the Cold War, colonialism, in many instances, still um, explain the uh, the level of international relations um, and also the standing the the standing of many African countries to date.
0: That was actually very interesting. I really like the point you made about how money just seized. And all of them were just on their own. Yep. So that led to a lot of wahala from many countries. So yep. the, the next thing uh, we'll be talking about is the nature of conflict today. So we talked about how states have morphed and changed over time on the African continent. And also how these states you know, have sought to gain legitimacy and sought to band together and create their own, make their voices heard. And also get, get what they're looking for on the international stage. So what we've seen in the last 25 years is a growing coalition of regional um, contraptions, say, in the West, you have ECOWAS, in the East, you have the EAC, in the South, SADC, and north, even though they don't believe they're part of Africa, they have their own sort of little group in there as well. Um, And um, in, in general, we also are seeing the rise of terrorism and also um, counterterrorism has been the major driving force of military intervention no longer are, are we having state against state it's mostly states against very superfluous entities things you can't really quite touch and see they are everywhere so what exactly in your view is the nature of conflict in Africa today and how does that shape their engagement with the with the international community
2: yeah thank you um the nature, as you rightly said, the nature of conflict has been mostly um, intrastates, uh, which in most cases feature the state government and, as you said, superfluous or, um, or elements within the state that are bent on destabilizing the state. Um, some of these, as I said earlier, are still... Um, um, emanated from, from the Cold War. Some of these mm-hmm. uh, groups mm-hmm. have, were formed during the Cold War and are uh, still, um, still active today. And then secondly, the one key issue that has um, remained and that has caused conflict within Africa is um, the issue of divide and rule. So, um, And it's still linked to colonialism. I've, I've been to several conferences, and um, we've had debate upon debate, and I think one interesting person that um, has written extensively on this issue is um, Zuberi Um and he has written a lot on the impact of colonialism and Cold War on um, current conflict in Africa. So there are two schools of thoughts in international relations at the moment when you um, um, talk about conflicts within Africa. The first group believed that um, colonialism ended about 60 years ago on the average and um, shouldn't impact or shouldn't explain conflicts within Africa now. Whereas some people believe that the, um, the legacies of colonialism lingers on and still explain many conflicts we have in Africa. I think to a very large extent, I um, tilt towards the second group because one key thing uh, which happened during the, the uh, during the colonial era was the issue of divide and rule. So if you look at um, the two main colonial um, powers, which I mentioned earlier, we have um, France and then we have... Um, we have France, and then we have um, uh, Britain. Britain. So the two countries used different means to colonize Africa. So um, for Britain, um, when you look, the motivation was the same. Uh, colonialism was motivated by economic, political, and social factors, and um, the reasons was one: the collapse of the once profitable slave trade. Two, the imperatives of capitalist industrialization. Three, um, search for guaranteed markets and profitable investment outlets. And then finally, ideological, um, hegemonic and domination reasons. But the primary motivation was economic. So when you look at the British style of colonization, um, it was um, what was called indirect rule. So the uh, British... Style depended on they depended on local elites and traditional governance, so they used um, many indigenous intermediaries and maintained traditional patterns of social organization. So they purposely maintained opposing traditional patterns of control. So, um, just to explain that in layman terms, what they did was um, they um, allowed. The, the structure, the tra- the ethnic structure to to govern themselves. So the Housas will govern the Housas on a regional basis. The Igbos will govern the Igbos. The Yorubas will govern the Yorubas. That's in the case study of Nigeria. But what they did was then to raise some other smaller ethnic groups to act as um, a counterweight thereabouts to the bigger ethnic groups. That's one. Then also, they made sure that the prevented these ethnic groups from, um, from coming together. Thereby, they, there was a kind of unhealthy reverie, a rivalry or competition um, between these groups. Whereas they did not destroy the traditional governance, the system of governance, they created rivalry, which still lingers on until today. So what happens is, since the time of colonialism, the ethnic groups have seen themselves as opposing to each other. They've seen themselves as having different aspirations, different um, views, and different ideologies. So these still are resulting in clashes till date. And that is why in many African countries, when somebody is given a political position, people really do not care about the ac- academic or the their ability to do the job. People are more interested in um, their ethnicity and their religion. So this seed was sown during the period of colonization and still remains till date. And that's why there are lots of ethnic um, conflicts within African states. If you compare the British style of colonization to the French one, the French engaged in what was referred to as cultural assimilation and administrative centralization. So what they did was to incorporate different ethnic groups into a single social system, thereby reducing the impact and powers of the traditional systems. Um, Unlike the British system, direct rule and orders came from France, and then there was this idea of a Greater France through culture and language. So they made the people believe they are uh, part of the French Empire. But what um, this result this resulted in a situation of ethnic stratification, whereby the closer you are to the central government, the more benefit you get um, from the state. So ethnic groups that were closer to the central government in terms of geographical um, location and also um, academic uh, qualification, they benefited more from the French, whereas those that were far away benefited less. And then this created rivalries, again, similar to what happened in the British Empire, created rivalry between ethnic groups because some felt they were not being assimilated enough into the States. And, then mm. they, and this resulted in a lot of secession movement. And this explained the conflict in Nijay, the conflict in Mali, the conflict in Burkina Faso, because you have the Tuaregs. The Tuaregs are one of the biggest ethnic groups in Africa. But these ethnic groups are are distributed um, um, on the corridors of about nine countries because there are even Tuaregs in Nigeria. There are Tuaregs Mm -hmm. in Nigeria, there are Tuaregs in Mali, Tuaregs in Niger, Burkina Faso, all the way to Libya. But because of the French mode of assimilation and um, colonization, the Tuaregs never felt that they've benefited from the French regime. And the, this cessation movement is what is still causing problems. When you look at what is happening in Mali today, uh, it was as a result of this problem. The same thing in Burkina Faso, the same thing in Niger, the same thing in Chad, the same thing in Libya. So, you know, the, um, a, a lot of these um, ethnic tensions, conflicts are still as a result of colonization. And um, they still actually explain um, the conflict in African countries to a very large extent today the so, other part of your question in terms of um terrorism um is it part of the question or do you want me to just talk about yeah um,
0: yeah talk, talk about it
2: so the other part in terms of terrorism is, is still quite similar um terrorism is a result of partly um aggrieved ethnic groups within the state who felt that um, they could actually achieve their aims through um terrorism and secondly, through what we uh, call um, ungoverned spaces. Africa is, um, when you compare the population of many African countries to their landmass, many of them have um, a very large landmass mass um, with um, small population. So this creates a, a, an issue whereby a lot of these regions are either ungoverned or alternatively governed. And uh, these pockets of spaces Provides areas for insurgent groups, as we've seen with Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb in the Sahel, um, Boko Haram in northern Nigeria, and some although some other groups uh, like that. So a combination of um, co- colonial um, heritage, ungoverned um, spaces, lack of economic um, economic development in many of these huge spaces have actually given, um, uh, made it easy for terrorist elements or insurgent groups to actually thrive in these areas. This um, has also led to um, the division of the states, of of African states into regions. Because when you look at um, the regional, you mentioned ECOWAS and some other regions within, some other um, organizations within Africa, the reason for these um, sub-organizations under the African Union is for them to be able to combat the, um, the security threats that actually face this region. So for instance, the security threat in um, Southern Africa um, differs from that in uh, Central Africa or even in West Africa. Although now, in the last 10 years, we've seen um, a a semblance of issues. So, for instance, the farmers headsmen conflict was never a problem in West Africa until the last 10 years. But it's been a problem in South Africa for over 30, 40 years because of droughts and um, the vagaries of the climate. But some of these um, issues, because of lack of economic development, many of these issues are being mirrored and reflected in several regions. But the formation of these um, groups or this organization is firstly to um, address uh, security issues that uh, face the region specifically and also to create economic advancement and free movements within these regions, whereby uh, a, a, a copy of um, the European Union strategy is, um, trying, they're trying to implement, which is, uh, the, the fact that when countries trade together, they are less likely to go to war against each other.
0: Hmm. It's very interesting. Um, thank you very much. I think just to conclude, just to ask one more question, which is, you know, in the course of your research, what is one thing you are researching now that is very interesting that you like our listeners to know about?
2: Yeah, um, I just published um, an article last month in September, um, which is the. Um, I've been analyzing the conflict between headsmen and, um, and farmers in Africa. Uh, a lot of people don't even know that in the last two years, this conflict has actually claimed more lives than terrorism. So, more people have died as a result of this conflict than terrorism in the last two years. Although climate change has been fingered as one of the key issues responsible for this conflict, uh, but my research um, has proven that there are some other Underlying elements um, that is um, responsible for this conflict, and one key one is um, what I describe as neo patrimonialism. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, neo pastoralism. I'm getting it mixed. Neo pastoralism. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, pastoralism used to be small scale, family held um, cluster of of cattle, which ranged from three to sixteen on average, Mm -hmm. but in the last couple of years, we've seen um, something I described as new pastoralism, which is large-scale ownership of cattle often used as a means of actually um, concealing, stolen, or illicit wealth. So a lot of um, African leaders, political office holders, military officers, when they um, accumulate um, wealth, Many it's becoming increasingly difficult for many of them to hide this stolen wealth in, in their countries or even abroad. Uh, in the last 20, 30 years, it was a trend whereby many, um, a lot of stolen funds was touched in Switzerland, in America, in Britain. Many of them were able to use it to buy properties around the world. Mm-hmm. But this has been toughened by these countries because they don't want to be seen as, uh, as evils for. Illicit wealth. And um, also in different countries, the countries are trying to um, increase their uh, transparency drive uh, by making it difficult for people to, to hide money in, in stolen accounts. So in Nigeria, for instance, the bau metric verification was introduced in 2015, whereby um, everybody, every account is linked. So if you have three, four, five accounts in Nigeria, you have a unique number which links all these accounts and shows the owner. So this made it difficult for many people who have stolen illicit wealth or who have um, gathered wealth from mm. smuggling or other illicit activities to hide wealth. And um, my research has shown that many of this um, fund, a large chunk of this fund, is being actually diverted into cattle ownership. Because at the moment, uh, there is no mechanism. Oh, wow. in many African countries to identify the ownership of cattle. So many of, a lot of, a large part, a large chunk of this fund is diverted to cattle ownership. And because these people have invested um, a lot of money in cattle, or in this cattle, they harm the the tenders. So they harm the people that tend the cattle. So um, a lot of harm is being provided to the people that um, rear the cattle and keep this cattle. One, to protect their investment, and two, to also prevent uh, them from uh, cattle rustlers, people that go around stealing cattle. So we discover that there is a militarization of cattle management in in many countries in Africa, and this has resulted in a lot of conflict. So there have been an increase in conflict between pastoral groups, increase in conflict between um, pastoralists, and some of these weapons that are being used uh, to protect these cattle... Are also used freely against farmers when there is a tussle. So um, the problem with large-scale cattle ownership is that there is no um, there is no um, social justification for these people to to maintain an upward relationship with farmers. You know, over the years, when um, cattle holding was small, um, the the pastoralists um, had the incentive whereby they. Um, form relationships with farmers. And there was even cut um, um, grain for milk um, structure uh, mechanism whereby the farmers will give um, grains and then they collect milk in return. So there was a cordial, mm. biotic relationship between the farmers and the pastoralists. But the new form of pastoralism that we've seen in the last couple of years um, does not focus on that because it is arms-fueled and then the farmers are forced to either um, keep quiet when their farms are being destroyed by these large cattle or totally wiped off and destroyed um, when their farms are taken over. So this is um, a big, big uh, problem. It's not just in Nigeria. It's in Ghana, it's in Ivory Coast, it's in um, about 11 countries in Africa at the moment. And this is something that um, seems as if if it is not nipped in the bud quickly, Um, Africa could actually be sitting on a keg of gunpowder, if I can use that adage.
0: The Nigerian Civil War, otherwise known as the Biafran War, was a war that lasted from 1967 to 1970. Over 3 million people lost their lives in that war and is still a strong bone of contention in present-day Nigeria. Now we hear from Chukwemeka Ojuku, who led the Biafran decision. Fighting
1: a war knowing the difficulties, the odds against us there is an element of um, fatalism people feeling well if the world chooses to abandon us then perhaps it is better we all perish they
2: don't ever consider a Biafra not free they believe in either Biafra free
1: or no Biafra at all that means none of us living to see it
0: So now we speak with Atenuke Adigun, who researches international development at Johns Hopkins University. All right. Thank you, Atenuke, for joining us. Um, We just want to talk about, like, coups and and general conflicts that occurred in the 20th century and your views on them.
3: Okay. um, Thank you very much, Obina, for inviting me um, to... This podcast—it's definitely an interesting topic that I've also tried to explore, particularly for like the Nigerian context. Was first of all, like in that time, there was like deep-rooted like ethnic ethnicities and ethnic divisions. So there still is now. There still is. And this, like, <laughs> you have a point there. And this like this like ethnic e- ethnic like um. Like, ethnic et, ethnic groups sort of had like threats and they could like mess up the polity at the time so um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> at
3: the time so like that sort of created an environment for military rule to persist because you could think okay maybe like if military rule um if it was like because the idea like um, with military rule was that it was always going to be like a stop gap and not like a permanent solution. But it ended up like prolonging for a long time. And like one of the instant things that I noticed, I mean, not instantly, but I noticed that like it was primarily because of like there was, nobody could agree. Everybody was in their camp kind of and trying to fight for their own rights. So there was no that, like you said, it was, it's not, Nigeria is not a homogeneous state. So, like, you, people have different ideas, ideologies. Um, so that, like, sort of, like, lack of, like, unity really, like, filled up that, really filled up the, the need for, like, the military role and created some sort of, like, leadership void, so to speak. And so they, they persisted also because of, like, they were able to get access to rents and this, like, short term, and it was even really worse when, like, the oil boom years. So, like, when the oil was being exported in large quantities, the rents just exploded. So, imagine, like, a few people having access to those, like, oil money. Like, it was, like, ridiculous. It was ridiculous for them to give it up and be developmental. Exactly. So, um, so, um, and it, this is not even just military guys. It's even like the civilian elite. So like anytime I'm talking about elites, it's always going to be military because the civilians had to enable at it in terms of like numbers. Like um, So like on that military role, for example, in 1970, like Nigeria's growth rate was like 25%. Like we were growing ridiculously, in, 25% in 1970, according to the World Bank. Wow. In 1999, our growth rate went to 1%. Like, it was, like, you could definitely see that declining trend. And, like, even, like, maybe, like, controlling for, like, um, controlling for, like, population and stuff like that. Even our GDP per capita also declined. So um, it was definitely a very, like um tense um and really non-developmental period just looking at it from the angle of a limited access order where they could limit access to rent and then i also looked at um asemoglu and robinson's like idea of like path dependence and tried to like use that to say well maybe what happened was that um Yes, there was limited access orders with these elites. There were elites that were in power at, as at that time. But like, who formed the elites? How did these elites come to be? And that's really what like the part dependence like story helped helped me to like like know in terms of the fact that there's history with everything. Like nothing just came to to be. Um. So and what was this history like? Um. Obviously, as Mowgli and Robinson were saying, were of the idea that like history is important in how states are formed, going back to this idea of like state formation. No. Much of what we see is colonization, to be honest, and mm-hmm. extractive in, in, inclusive states. Those states are like, I mean, you know them, like inclusive states, America. Um, I
0: mean, I mean, Australia. To, to, to an extent. America, to
3: an extent. <laughs> you do have your opinions, right? <laughs>
0: To that extent, you know, I mean, I mean, if you grew yes, up on that Jim Crow,
3: I don't know how
4: inclusive you would have felt, you know. True, 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 true,
3: true. <laughs> Robinson, like, mentioned was like, yes, like, these elites, they could also have, like, taken the high road and said that they were going to develop the state, right? So leaders actually gained a lot. There was high benefits from the limited access to resources. So here, the concept of Limited access also came up. They pretty much had absolute power, but they did not use it um, to the development of the society. And why didn't they use it to the development of society? I'd say it's a combination of um, history. Like, there was already a culture prior to, um, I mean, I'm speaking in the Nigerian context now, prior to even the military rule being formed, there was definitely a culture of having an elite and having that like um, culture of like limiting access to things, um, to resources. And these military rulers defi- definitely, when they got access to these economic resources, they were, oni- they were unwilling to like let go of um, power. So they wanted to stay in for as long as they could and extract like economic resources for as much and long as they could. And this... Re- this led to, like, highly, like, personalized, like, way of ruling and authoritarian rule. And there's definitely something to be said about, like, democratic principles and, like, non-personalized, like, institutions. Because these guys pretty much just, like, corrupted um, every form of institutions. And what we just, what we're left with was pretty much just isomorphic mimicry. Like, all the courts, the courts were, like, there's always clients patronage relationships in every one of them. So it pretty much, they pretty much just like used the economic resources that they had to work for their own advantage. So, um, and it's, it's, I feel like that's a big thing that had to do with like, I wouldn't say like the, the African or like West African, like culture we do have values right we have strong values we seem to value like integrity but i really don't know where like that connection was lost with like military rule and how like the whole form of like their own cultural upbringing how that didn't really translate into like helping people because we're quite like communal right um in how we relates really, uh, cultures exactly. are very communal and it should which sh- in theory we should be working for the good of like the, the the group versus one person but this is where I feel history of like colon colonization definitely plays a big part and when you see something like despotic leaders Mamdani, my, my like with colonization, they literally just would pick someone and make him like give him like a really juicy post. And that sort of thing, like, if you grew up and you saw that and you saw someone being rich or you also, like, had, like, that sort of culture, you sort of start thinking more about yourself versus the group. And um, who were the people that got British education, for example? They're probably, like, children of, like, these figurehead rulers. Um, I mean, like, scratch my back I I scratch yours right so Mm -hmm. who 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 would have been these people that got these opportunities to get military training and rise up in the ranks get promoted they would most likely have been people that had some form of like relationships or were loyal to this colonial master so I feel like that sort of like culture and like colonization effects definitely played a part in them thinking more of themselves and for themselves versus thinking of the good of, of the, the group. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that was amazing, actually. <laughs> really enjoyed listening to that. <laughs> I'm,
3: I'm
0: sorry. Um, uh, I guess the next question I want to ask is um, how ethnicity played a role in the makeup of the military in Nigeria. And in your view, you just touched on it right now, saying um colonizers were more susceptible to uh, people that they could they could see were subservient to their own needs and 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 wants and everything, but in general, like how did that ethnic makeup of the military create that relationship where who became the norm?
4: Hmm. hmm.
3: that's an interesting question. Because I don't know too much of, it seemed like it was like, so with ethnicity now, no, like there was more like Northern military leaders than Southern military leaders. So if you think about it, like if a Northern military leader was carrying out a coup against another Northern military leader, is there really like a whole lot of ethnicity involved versus like the fact that like before Biafra there was definitely an ethnic spin to that like but like after Biafra it was I feel like it sort of pretty much transitioned to more of like who could control the booming resources for in Nigerian context for example or who could have that power and what I could see was like from like even just reading um from like Osage for example he's one of the things he said like. The, like I think I might be wrong, maybe nine military coups that occurred in, in that s- span of like post-Biafra to nineteen ninety-nine. And one of one of the things that they kept saying, each successive coup um leader kept saying that it was because their government was non-inclusive, the military ruler was <laughs> non-inclusive, and he was authoritarian in how he ruled. So if you think about it, it's like that was pretty much how they were, if you look at broadcast from like military leaders, they would definitely lay claim to non-inclusiveness and corruption. And like, they were really ruling authoritarian authoritatively, but the irony is that they also sort of did the same thing. I mean, I feel like Gowon might probably stand out as one of the people that try to incorporate like more um, civil society and he, he did like try to transition to civil um, military democratic rule right but that he kept postponing <laughs> he postponed and then there was also like pressure from um his like his like military um i guess i don't know I don't know what's called them like colleagues um his boys so,
4: yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and to be fair
3: he was like he if you think about it, maybe he didn't really have like so much control, right? Like, exactly. And some, because he, he wasn't like, he was like, he wasn't like the top leader at that point. And that was the reason why more were also like vexed. So like, who is this boy? <laughs> 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 is this? I, exactly. <laughs> who is this boy that like, uh, uh, it's just for me. I mean, like he was looking fresh and like trying to, I'm like, I'm supposed to be the one that I'm supposed to get this post. So you could see, definitely see see more of like, I feel like transitioning away from ethnicity to more like a desire to control resources and things. Like issues like rank also came in. So I feel like those issues might have been one of the reasons for like the successive coups and why it was very in, unstable. Um, because I I mean I mean I'm ver- I'm naive, but I'm I'm struggling to see how like say like someone like Danjuma or uh, Mortala, or, I mean, like they. I mean, I guess like there might be more like to the North. I might just be generalizing. So maybe, yeah, I might be generalizing, but I really, yeah, I can't really speak to the rule of ethnicity because my idea is it was more of a, a power grab, a power grab, successive power grabs. Um, and control.
0: Ah. In the latter half of the 1930s, Italy invaded Ethiopia, launching what is now known as the Second Italo-Ethiopian War. The war would last for quite a bit and Emperor Haile Selassie would leave his beloved country and move to England and live there for a while. He would eventually return in the early 1940s and lead his country. However, he had no idea that a few decades down the line, him and his entire Solomonic dynasty and whatever it is that they represent will be toppled and reduced to the ash heap of history. So now we speak with Dr. Marie Huber, who teaches African history at the Humboldt University of Berlin. What exactly happened in Ethiopia? So, within the Ethiopian case, it was what some consider is probably the one true revolution that occurred in 20th century in Africa when it comes to the position of a sitting government. Why exactly did that happen? Why was Emperor Haile Selassie basically sent back in by the dirt?
4: So what is striking about Ethiopia, and I, th- I think it would be interesting to also look at other African countries to ask if you look beyond, so this is what I want to say before, I will try to answer your question. What is striking is that, in fact, you can also write a history of Ethiopia in the 20th century that is very much a history of continuity, Uh, a continuity of state modernization, a continuity of centralizing the government, a continuity of building up, in the course of the state modernization, state institutions, Um, and an administrative infrastructure um, and also a continuity of these institutions that serve in a more indirect way, an increase of what today we would call governance. So I'm speaking here of cultural institutions, the education system, museums, um, a a national anthem, an official language. Uh, All of these can be ways, national heritage, Sides, uh, which are defined uh, top-down and become uh, also a means of governing the people and the territory. So what was the cause? Uh, One of the most obvious, well, it, it was a mixture of things. So first of all, the situation in Ethiopia before the overthrow was far from being stable. Um, like I said, there was this continuous effort since the middle of the 19th century kind of state centralization under a, a, in a greater Ethiopian territory to centralize the provinces and put them under central rule. Um, but neither the external margins of this territory nor the internal boundaries and power relationships were, were particularly stable. Uh, the Italian invasion... Uh, in a way fostered a bit the centralization efforts partially because they restructured the provinces through an ethnic assigning provinces to ethnic identities that were partially ill-informed, partially um, intentionally constructed onto the Ethiopian territory and did not reflect the reality of the people who lived there. So we already have. Um, I'm telling this because I think there was very fertile ground for you know um, tensions, sort of
0: upheaval, hmm, that upheaval,
4: tensions and conflict. Um, there was so then in the 50s, Ethiopia. Um, it, at the same time. It, As the late colonial governments tried to engage in a mainly technology and modernization-oriented development effort. Um, So the investment went towards um, sourcing sourcing raw materials and minerals, um, building up a technology sector, uh, building up higher education to have more national expertise, um, but also employing the foreign aid. So what happened is that Actually, um, a broader base of intellectuals, basically, was educated because of this imperial imperial policy of sending students abroad. Um, And these these students, they they went to study in Europe or in the U.S. And, of course, they were not – they came from – they didn't exactly come from from poor family or from from poor families or from peasant families. Yeah, they came from the nobility or from, if one wants to call it such, a kind of uh, upper middle and upper class of the Ethiopian society.
0: The aristocracy.
4: Uh, yeah, partially aristocracy, um, um, and a similar strata basically. So, and they were the Amharic um highland elite population, so to speak. Uh, so but they got they they became well through this education um basically all Ethiopian intellectual traditions of how Ethiopia should modernize and how what Ethiopia's role in the world should be, because there was a very strong intellectual tradition of, um, of, um, yeah, philosophical. There was a, there was a strong intellectual tradition existing in Ethiopia that that put forward important thoughts on reform and such, and so then you have these students who go abroad and they come back educated. And they basically form um, the core of the Ethiopian Revolution, which is why there was there was an actual Ethiopia is one of the countries where the nineteen sixty-eight student revolution or the, the student revolutions of the nineteen sixties also took place. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there is an edited volume called The Global Sixties, and Baru has a nice article in that book on the Ethiopian student movement. So, and they, they provide a lot of the intellectual ground for the revolution and for the, for the socialist ideas in the revolution. Um, another interesting fact that and th- th- a third element that comes together is that the military also under Haile Selassie was outside, was another avenue for a kind of a social mobility And for Amharization, because the military spoke Amharic, but the military, of course, drafted from a much wider basis than than those um, groups of society where the students that were sent for overseas education were drafted from. So um, these people are, because of all of these, um, processes I described—they are able to connect and to join forces, so to speak. They're all able to communicate in the same language, and they're able to exchange about their ideas. And the, they definitely agree that the emperor failed in modernizing the country sufficiently to um, to achieve. Development to achieve a better distribution of the country's resources to achieve a better um, um, a better
0: situation for the people. Um,
4: well, yeah, a better political situation, game in terms of um, on an international level, on the, an African level. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: well, I know Ethiopia is your um, is your area of expertise, but then. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the countries surrounding Ethiopia, because around the same time they were also into the same sort of rule—not not so much military rule, but you know, sort of autocratic authoritarianism. You know, you had Kenyatta mm. in, in Kenya.
4: Around about, if you ask me about the surrounding countries and how, well, what mode of governance basically emerged. And you're asking, was there a pattern, right? Exactly. So, um, one moment that is also interesting to look at and that we could maybe also add to your influential or most significant moments is when we look at the founding of the African Union. Mm. And we look, there were basically um, those two groups that one group that leaned more towards a maintenance of the Boundaries drawn during the colonial period in Africa, and another group that leaned towards a redrawing of these boundaries coming from different perspectives here. Some w- wanted more, a stronger um, regional federation rather than having national states. Others just wanted to redraw boundaries. So um, to be clear, that also, again, I can say for the case of Ethiopia and uh, Somalia, <laughs> Ethiopia and Somalia, for example, where, because you're asking about the neighboring countries, it's an excellent example where you can see that while um, Haile Selassie spoke of maintaining the colonial boundaries because he was in favor of sovereign, strong national states, thinking that that will create the most strong Uh, African order, a political order. Um, He was, of course, in favor of those boundaries that were in his interest, and he was absolutely not. There were there were also colonial borders that he wanted to have moved. Yeah, and that were were,
1: Mm -hmm. exactly
4: where he was still. um, So he was going about it in a very opportunistic. Manner and if also you look at what state at, leaders do exactly, if you look at other leaders of state or at, at other states' territorial interests, um, you, you might certainly find similar instances that where it served the broader political interest, the colonial boundary uh, was supposed to stay, but where it served a different strategy, the colonial boundary was then renounced as being a colonial boundary and therefore having. Mm-hmm. To um, so I agree What we can take from this Is that it's definitely Always good to look beyond The official speeches And beyond official Political programs That were given out And to look at this In a more nuanced way We also learn from this That in addition To the national level And this is very similar To European history For example The regional level Is really key To understanding The
0: national level
4: History Yeah To look at to look because the national if you only look at the national level it might not always give you the true story of what happened in the region and what kind of program a national government was driving because that may have varied um the centralization of rules uh, or a mode of governance one thing that can be said is very characteristic for all african governments after 1960s is that um, kind of a ruling elite took over the government from the colonial, former colonial rule, and that very much in their favor, it was very much in their favor to build a very state-centered government, a very, to to have uh, and to also make development a state-centered and a state-driven affair um, and not so much And the private sector played a more marginal role in the 60s, at least. And this, of course, also helped strengthen the position of the military rule. It helped strengthen the institutional basis for the autocratic rule, which is why in Ethiopia, for example, the transition was from Imperial to socialist, but there was no transition in terms of how autocratic, how, how, how centralized, how, um, how powerful the central government was. Yeah. Or there was, there was very little change if you look at it from that perspective. And I think we can see that, um, in most other African states as well.